0: Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning.
1: This is Brad Furlin, your Monday host for Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, in beautiful downtown Waterbury. Uh, great historic studio here. I love coming in. Uh, it was a nice drive this morning. Left St Albans. There were there were deer in the in the meadow as I was driving down the road that I live on. And then when I got to the lake, uh, geese have found their way back, or the hardy ones stayed. I don't know which. Um, and it was a it was a nice drive down here to Waterbury. It's good to be here. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking with uh, Senator Thomas Chitton a little bit about crossover and some of the important bills that that'll be uh, moving forward in the legislature. Then we'll be talking with Melinda White, who is uh, a person of recovery, long term recovery, who also works in the field of treatment. And uh, it, that'll be a little about hope and and resource. So if you're struggling or, you know, somebody who's struggling, uh, certainly turn in for that, or tune in for that segment. Uh, we have a little bit of an unusual schedule today and tomorrow. I'm doing the first hour today and tomorrow and Pat McDonald was doing the second hour today and tomorrow. Uh, she will be on later, um, this morning with Paul Burns with Ranked Choice Voting. And, uh, tomorrow, uh, tune in at nine with me. I have a uh, An amazing author who wrote about uh, the uh, orphanage in Burlington on North Avenue, Ghost of the Orphanage, a story of mysterious deaths, a conspiracy of silence, and search for justice. Uh, the author will be in studio. She's flying in from Australia, and we're going to have an hour-long talk about all that occurred there. Uh, so I want to welcome my guest, Senator Thomas Chittenden. Welcome to the show.
2: Brad, thank you for having me. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, can hear you. Um, so like, uh, many, you have many hats and one, one hat you just took off and hung up, um, either temporarily or permanently was, uh, you were a couple terms on South Burlington City Council.
2: I served for three terms, eight three years. Three terms,
1: okay, wow.
2: And uh, I will say this, at the last meeting, they asked if I had any closing remarks, and I said, well, it's my last meeting for now. I, I might be back. So I'm, I'm happy to serve. I, I had to step away because of the work uh, of both the legislature, UVM, and my three kids, still one of the youngest, still being in elementary school. I just needed some more free time. But South Burlington's my home, and if the city council wants me back in the years to come, I'd be happy to go back.
1: Yeah. Were there any sort of it's you just barely uh, got off the council. I know that. And with the March election. uh But are there any sort of near term reflections on on accomplishments that you're proud of or or things you think still need to be taken on?
2: Sometimes I'm proud of things that didn't happen during my watch. But, uh, you know, one thing I'm really glad to see, uh, a news article that just came out, I think, over the weekend on Vermont Digger and also in the other paper that's uh, finally gaining some traction. Um, I wrote a counselor's corner about this about five years ago. South Burlington is now the second largest city in the state since Essex Junction split with Essex Town. We are number two to Burlington, and we only have five counselors. Burlington has 12. And you go. I don't want I don't want twelve. But if you look at other communities, Rutland, they have like eleven aldermen. There's some communities with seven or nine. I just think proportionally, um, we have a lot of people for only five counselors. And my eight years of, on that body, I would just see us making better decisions if we had maybe two more people, seven people. It's a volunteer position, so if we had two more volunteers to work the polls maintain the elections because those you need a certain number of people, and we now have four polling districts, and also to serve on all the regional bodies, the Airport Commission, Regional Planning Commission, CCRPC, as well as GMT. Uh, I just think that South Burlington would be better served with a couple more counselors, and I'm glad that's gaining some traction, and you might hear more about that in the year or two to come.
1: That sounds very practical. You see that with uh, committees and trustees where – You know, it's not just the meeting itself. As you point out, there's a lot of um, extracurricular responsibility to to make things work better. Uh, Is that would that be a little bit grassroots Do citizens need to clamor for that or how does that work?
2: So it's actually about a year and a half ago, maybe two years, uh, the city council included in our budget as well as our priorities just to, to charge the charter committee to look into this. And so they've been doing a great process. Um, everything in government should move slowly uh, or does move slowly often, and that's usually a good way to make sure voices are heard. So the charter committee has been very deliberate over the last year, and they're starting to now have some community hearings where they're going to hear from the, uh, the people, the, the citizens, about some of the thoughts they have they are aren't decided on anything, but it's moving to a place where they're almost ready to make a recommendation and they want to get feedback from the community. So it has happened from a grassroots perspective on a very thoughtful timeline, and I'm I'm expecting to see something come out this coming July, which is the deadline we gave them a year and a half ago for their recommendations.
1: Sounds great. Uh, we're talking with Senator Thomas Chittenden from South Burlington. If you want to join us, we're at 802-244-1777, Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, for, for the listeners who, they, they heard your name, Thomas Chittenden, um, but let's do a little bit of a ancestry history lesson here. Where does it go back to, Senator?
2: Great question. Uh, What I love about uh, living in Vermont is people know how to pronounce my name here just because you see Chittenden on a few different places. Elsewhere in the country, it gets mispronounced in a lot of different ways. But my my roots run deep, I always say. Um, We have traced my family to the uh, uh, Bethul Chittenden, who was the brother of Thomas Chittenden. Thomas Chittenden, the first governor of Vermont with his brother Bethuel, as well as uh, her, his sister Elizabeth, uh, were the, one of the original settling group that uh, explored into Vermont. Bethuel was more of a leader in the church. Uh, he actually is buried in Shelburne, just across the town line from South Burlington. So he is my great, 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 great uncle, um, brother to the first governor, Thomas Chittenden. But my my standard joke is, I'm really glad my parents didn't call me Bethul. Uh, so uh, it's that's how far my roots go, and uh, nothing against Bethul. I just haven't met a Bethul yet, so I'd probably be uh, the only Bethul around if they had gone with uh, the name of my direct ancestor back to the roots of Vermont.
1: It's an amazing story. And so you've done a lot of public service, You, as we just talked about. You were on the South Burlington City Council. You have uh, were involved with the, uh, the uh, public, the busing, transportation. Uh, you're a lecturer at UVM. Um, and then you know you you're in your second term as senator the first term was a little bit challenging though you you g- joyously got elected and i think i think you were the like the top vote getter in in chittenden county as a as a newcomer to to that and yet covid hit so um you didn't really get into the state house much in the early days
2: no i I campaigned for my first office for the legislature in the thick of the COVID pandemic. Um, If you remember, the world stopped turning in March of 2020. I announced for the state Senate in late April 2020. And so that entire campaign was done via Zoom and uh, phone calls and very um, socially distanced outdoor gatherings. And then when the legislature started in uh, January 21, through until the first 75% of it, it was entirely on Zoom. So what I will say, now that I've had time in person and on Zoom, uh, it is much more effective in person. I get so much accomplished and stay in tune with important issues by just walking from my committee room to the cafeteria. I'll have multiple very rich connection points to know what's what's happening. When I was on Zoom, I would uh, get off Zoom and I'd just be in my living room and I'd have to read emails. And I was, it was very difficult to stay on top of things. So I, I will say this, like many things, legislating is best done in person. And more so than not remotely
1: and it's a reminder uh, the state House is the people's house and uh, citizens are um, readily allowed to go in you can um, easily find your senator or your legislator in the cafeteria or coming out of committee room or watch them on the floor both are visible from from uh, you know viewing spaces uh, it's it, we're still small Vermont aren't we
2: we are, and it's in our constitution that when the legislature is in session, the doors of the state house shall remain open, and the roots of our open meeting law are grounded in that establishment. So, yes, when we're in session, we are, and through until mid-May, and who knows, maybe longer. I encourage constituents, any Vermonter, come down to the state house, your house, see the house, talk to your reps, talk to your senators. We, I always love seeing people that uh, I want to talk to me about about issues in the hallways and in the cafeteria.
1: Um, and we're gonna be going to a break in about a minute, but you also have a family member joining you uh down in in Montpelier as well, right. <laughs>
2: So for those that don't know, the legislature has uh, for eighth grade students, okay, so only eighth grade students, they um, they recruit or they allow for uh, the page program, the legislative page program. This year, I think they have about 24 pages and in three different waves, so there's three blocks, eight pages, eighth grade students from all over Vermont uh, come down for six weeks, Tuesday through Friday, um, skipping school, so to speak, keeping up otherwise. And my daughter was lucky enough to uh, be accepted. And so I am commuting with my middlest daughter uh, for the next two weeks. She has two weeks left of this. And uh, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to to share the state house house with my middlest.
1: Well, I've met your daughter, and she's quite an upstanding young woman. So I bet that's a great experience. So we're talking with Senator Thomas Chittenden, uh, South Burlington, uh, recently uh for now, retired from the uh, city council, I'm reminded, Senator of uh, Jim Condos did a little bit of what you did. He he was serving, in the community on the council, and also was I think a rep and then a senator. So there's a, a proud legacy of service uh, from South Burlington, that's for sure.
3: Right
2: first got involved in running for South Burlington City Council, I met with Chuck Hafter, who was the uh, town manager for South Burlington for 30 years, and uh, he said, you know, Tom, you remind me of Jim Condos." and I, I, I think I take that as a compliment, I just don't know if Jim Condos does, but uh, either way, uh, <laughs> Jim's a great guy, He uh, he's given me a lot of guidance over the years as to ha- approach these roles, and yeah, he was uh, the chair of the City Council and on for 18 years, so he had me beat, I was only on for eight years. I believe he was a state senator for six, the last six of those 18 years.
1: Yeah, it's amazing service. Uh, You're both great guys, by the way. Uh, So you had a week off, so to speak, uh, meaning legislators went home. They got to meet with their constituents, uh, town meeting day in the rural communities. Uh, So you're headed back. Uh, tomorrow and, um, we're at a juncture called crossover. Let's talk a little bit about some of the bills that are, that are really ramping up and that you think are going to, uh, get the attention of the public.
2: Yeah. Happy to do that. Uh, I'll say this: I'm still relatively very new, and uh, not being a chair, I'm I'm a vice chair of transportation. Um, I'm also really just focused on some of the things that aren't necessarily catching the attention of the public. uh, Sort of the 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 work that needs to get done through the legislature. And uh, you're absolutely right. This past Friday was the first crossover deadline. It it gets a little nuanced, but uh, this past Friday, if a bill, a policy bill, didn't leave its initial committee of jurisdiction then it's, uh, it, it, may, it failed to meet that deadline. Now, there are still ways for it to stay alive this session, uh, but this coming week is actually still part of crossover because uh, when the policy bills leave the Committee of Jurisdiction, many of them, the big ones, have to go through what's, what are re- co- colloquially referred to as the money committees. And I serve on uh, Senate Finance, um, so that's one of the money committees. And any bill that has to do with the revenues of the state comes over to us, and so we have the second crossover deadline of this Friday uh, to uh, get it out of the Senate over to the House if it deals or affects the revenues of the state. Uh, so it has to get through Senate finance by the end of the week. And a big one that I'll be working on, and this is child care. Happy to talk about that if you, if you so desire. It's uh, got a big price tag, and uh, it's going to do some things. We have not gotten the updated JFO, Joint Fiscal Office, note on what it, be, um, what it will cost based on what the committee of jurisdiction senate health and welfare passed out of their body last week and there was a a late amendment uh, last wednesday you might have seen the news coverage so i don't know exactly how much it's going to cost i have some general contours of where i think the money is easily going to come from for part of it and then some of the tougher questions are what i'm going to be reading up on and wrestling with for most of this week
1: so part of the um, context around that is if Somebody has one or more children, and they uh they want to work, but um working sometimes only matches the amount of money they would pay for child care, I guess, and then so they don't actually get into the workforce, which is you know can be problematic. is this one of the the remedies that the legislature is looking to? provide money for child care so that people can get out into the workforce or what are the motivations?
2: so the uh, the cost the big bulk of this is to uh, basically have the state subsidize child care for those that are at certain income thresholds and at varying rates as they approach different um, percentages above the federal poverty line. I, I have to I can't be certain of this because I haven't doubled back to what came out of committee on Friday. But the initial bill, I believe, proposed um, for anybody uh, that is 450% of the federal poverty line, there would be some income sensitization to keep child care costs for the average family or average household of three at less than 10% of their uh, total income. So if you imagine somebody making $100,000 a year a family unit, a household unit, uh, this would be uh, a mechanism to make it so that you would be subsidized uh, at anything more than $10,000 or 10% to child care. And, and those, those subsidies, those funds, would do the other thing, which would be able to pay child care providers a competitive wage. The problem for child care is not just that it's too expensive, is that there's not enough providers and there's not enough providers because it's hard to find people to work at very low rates and very important jobs tending to our kids. Those subsidies will will hopefully allow for um, will make it so that the child care providers out there can pay a competitive wage, attracting good people to care for our kids.
1: So a a lot of a lot of puzzle pieces there. Uh, You had mentioned to me about uh, a home bill, uh, which I guess is about housing in Vermont. Is that right? The or the lack of housing.
2: This is why I ran for office. I, I didn't run for office to get rich because you don't, you don't make money at this. Uh, you don't run, I didn't run for office to get more sleep because it, it keeps me up at night. I, I ran for office because I just didn't hear enough of my elected leaders advocating for Vermont to grow. I just see it as being too hard in this state to build a house or a business. And so I want to see it, the state, the government, do everything we can to make it easier to build homes. The vacancy rates is the lowest in the country. People can't find houses here in the state. UVM, where I work, we we attract and we will go through an interview process and extend an offer. They will accept it. But then when they try to find a house in Vermont, they can't. For the last 40 to 50 years, we have had a regulatory environment constricting and constricting the ability to create houses across the spectrum, both affordable houses as well as housing that's affordable across different income levels. So I I went into that little uh, background in your your question, Brad, because this bill is, is fundamental to the core issues for the state. Every, all roads lead to housing. If we don't make it easier to build houses in this state, we can't attract people to have that, to raise their quality of life, to uh, to be able to deliver those child care service providers, uh, to to have the child care service providers that we need to offer. So the home bill. Uh, which I'm very excited excited and supportive of what Senator Keisha Ram Hinsdale has gotten out of committee, does a lot. It does it at both the local level and the state level. It has reforms to make it so that where's, where there is sewer and water uh, around the state, which is not very many places, those are where we can have higher density houses which achieve economies of scale. So it does a lot to make sure that communities are efficiently using that infrastructure that both the state and the federal government subsidized with grants over the years and it also makes some very important Act 250 changes. Act 250 has done a lot of great things for Vermont. 50-year-old legislation that applied to zoning in areas in Vermont that didn't have local zoning, but I feel like it's been um, misappropriately applied over the years to just prevent housing in areas that do have zoning. By using too many uh, regulatory hurdles to obstruct um, the development of much needed housing as well as other infrastructure. That doesn't mean I want to throw Act 250 out. No. Act 250 is, serves a purpose. We just need to look at it in a lens to modernize it. It wasn't perfect when it was written and so as long as we have a, a growth mindset on how to evolve and improve it, there are some great changes in the home bill that I was I, I was disappointed to see that Natural Resources took out last week, um, and uh, it has yet to come to the floor, and I believe there's still some negotiations going on. But when they made those changes, when Natural Resources changed the bill that came out of the other committee, the uh, Housing, and Urban, and Housing and General Affairs Committee, it made a, a lot of very important stakeholders withdraw their support, which jeopardizes this. I'm talking too much, but what I'll say is the home bill is fundamental to to resolve our issues. And I, as just one senator, am not going to be supportive of raising taxes if we don't simultaneously make it easier to build houses in this state, to grow the economy, to grow the availability of places for people with varying incomes to be able to live and grow a family and have a business and,
1: and work here in Vermont. So there's three inches of dust on... Uh... Act 250 reform uh, on on the manual. Is there yep. some hope here? Are we going to – you think that um, there's some light?
2: There's always hope. I have hope. Um, this – when I remember talking to our Senate caucus uh, at the beginning of the session and last fall after the elections, the number one thing people said is housing. And housing reform – the government can't build the houses. That's not what we do. But what we can do is what that bill that came out of Keisha Ron Hinsdale's committee does. which applies, makes, tweaks, adapts, adjusts, modernizes the regulatory constraints that anybody trying to build homes that understands the market has highlighted as obstacles to housing construction. I've seen different reports that to really meet Vermont's need, we need to build 40,000 houses a year by 2030 just to get up to where we should have been, but we aren't. And so these reforms aren't going to get 40,000 homes built next week, but they're going to make it easier, more attractive, more economical. Because when we have these regulatory, when we make it more expensive to build houses, that doesn't take the money out of the developers' pockets. It puts that money into the price of our houses. So if we want more affordable housing, we need more housing to make it Look sure, economics,
1: yeah, sure, the demand sure makes sense. Uh, we only have a couple minutes uh, left, so we talked earlier about uh, the fact that this is a state that you can impact or at least contact your legislators. So if you feel, you know, about this issue or others, you know, pick up the phone or or send them a note, let them know how you feel. Uh, the last thing I, w- I just want to touch on briefly. This is one of my own pet peeves, Senator, but um, I always liked the notion of maybe a shorter session. Lawmakers each year address, you know, 800 to 1,000 um, potential bills and over and over and over again. In 10 years, that could be 10,000 new laws, uh, a shorter session and maybe higher pay to attract um, new people. What do you think about that?
2: I definitely uh, support the, the higher pay. It's uh, hard to uh, to justify this. You take a huge pay cut. As for the shorter session, I, I'm not against that. What I, what I definitely have said multiple times is I don't support a longer session. I, I think uh, what we have is as long as we need. If anything, um, I'm really one good thing out of the pandemic is it dragged everybody kicking and screaming into the world of Zoom which makes it so that we can get a lot more business done remotely, which has a lot of efficiencies. So I, I'd support shrinking the session if we simultaneously added some flexibility to conduct some business uh, in the off session. So between now and when we come back in January, or between May and January, if there are just ways to not have to bring everybody to Montpelier, but to use some of those remote technologies to get some efficiencies out of the way. So we maybe don't need to spend as much time in session between January
1: and May. All right. Uh, We've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining me, Senator Thomas Chittenden, uh, public servant and uh, good guy. Thanks for having me, Brad.
0: In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today... Hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com.
1: Good morning, this is Brad Ferlin, your Monday host for Vermont Viewpoint. Tomorrow I'm going to be your Tuesday host, too, for one hour. And I have a very interesting guest tomorrow, uh, the author of the book, Ghosts of the Orphanage. It's a story of mysterious death, conspiracy of silence, and search for justice. Um, flying in from Australia is the author, Christine Kennelly. And she will be in studio with me, uh, as a sort of, a, a precursor. It, it, there's a lot of disturbing things we're going to talk about tomorrow, but, uh, she took the journey of, uh, discovering things that happened in the orphanage in Burlington. And, uh, it's quite a compelling story. My next guest is a, a friend and somebody I've worked with, uh, Melinda White. I want to welcome you to the show, Melinda.
3: Thank you, Brad. Thanks for
1: having me. Well, it's great having you. Um, listeners uh, tell you that, uh, Melinda and I worked together, uh, last year on a substance use addiction summit that was in Essex, uh, Vermont. It was a day long event that featured a lot of speakers, uh, featured over 80 uh, recovery folks in some capacity and uh it was it was quite a big event for the first year and uh we're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the show um but first melinda what it, it's what i would call boots on the ground um you are a person in long-term recovery and you work in the field of treatment and recovery um in in your local community but really statewide you're so well connected and i just would like to take the listeners a little bit back into a time when maybe you didn't have much hope in your life and just to set this up a little bit better we want to let listeners know that even if you're in that place where you don't feel like there's hope or there's recovery or you know there's any uh, light of day uh, that things can change and and uh I just want to walk back with you, Melinda, to when you thought that there wasn't hope, but then you found that there was.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Brad. So, you know, first off, I'm a Franklin County native. Um, I've lived in St. Albans um, in Franklin County for my whole life, aside from going to Philadelphia for 13 and a half months to do residential treatment. And in the home I was raised in, I didn't substance use. Uh, Quite frankly, I was raised in a wonderful home with great parents. Uh, I don't recall them drinking, smoking, swearing, breaking any rules. I know there was a bar downstairs, but I never actually saw them have a drink, so they were social, and it wasn't anything that I was really exposed to as a young person. Um, I got put on my radar at the age of 18. I had experimented a little bit here and there with marijuana and with alcohol, and at 18 years old, I got my first... Uh, At the time, it was called a DWAI, Driving Will Ability Impaired, and I lost my license for a year. At that point, I still had not drank to the excess of, you know, DLE and dealing with DTs with any kind of detox. So it wasn't on my radar that I would ever develop um, substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder. But then at age 21, I once again got another DUI for alcohol. And again, back in the legal system, which it was also something new to me and to my family. And it, whenever I would get in trouble with alcohol, it was kind of easy to reel it in for a length of time. And of course, you know, as anybody in recovery knows, it's also easy to forget how bad that was. Uh, it doesn't take long to forget how bad it is to struggle with substance use. So I still would eventually go on to drink. Um did do some college and had a, a great job that I enjoyed, although the thing that was missing was purpose. You know, I got up, went to work, did what I was taught to do, had stability, but didn't feel any real sense of purpose. And I was working in the accounting field um, in a with a customs brokerage. So, you know, there are also things that happen, and I find this with myself and people I help as well in our lives when we have, you know, we look at ACEs scale, which is the adverse childhood experiences, and it's a scoring that. Helps paint a picture with people who do go on to struggle it's basically defined as trauma and the higher the score the more likely that somebody who may have alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder that it would skyrocket faster than somebody that had a lower score and that's not to say that somebody who experiences trauma at a young age will most definitely have addiction however those who have addiction end up finding it progressing quite quickly Um, so over time, I had, you know, a few things that had happened throughout my life and didn't really have the appropriate coping skills. Um, And I can't say I wasn't shown some good coping skills when I was younger. I just learned about alcohol. And that was a lot easier than the coping skills I learned at a young age. So um, I, you know, made some more bad decisions. And not only was it alcohol, but in my mid to late 20s, I discovered um, opioids, which included, You know, pain pills, narcotics, oxys, codeine, all whatever I could get my hands on. And I was open to experimenting with other substances along the way. Uh, I got another DUI. And it was never, drugs were never on the radar legally, but they were most definitely a part of all of these arrests. And then my last DUI was December 5th, 2011. And by that point, I had already been to treatment uh, multiple times. And was severely addicted to opioids. And by then it was heroin because it was much cheaper to get than the pain pills. The street price changes over time. The harder it is to access a narcotic, the higher the prices. And it's not sustainable for somebody who's built a tolerance to narcotics. So by that time I was doing heroin and I woke up that day with the, you know, the classic promise to myself that I will not use opioids today no matter what i'm not going to use i promised myself because i've hit so many bottoms and on my lunch break at work i decided maybe having alcohol would help with the withdrawal because I was in severe withdrawal from not having opioids it only took hours before i start to feel it and after drinking on a lunch break i realized you know going back to work it's going to be obvious that i'm not doing well so i decided to head home and of course, I ended up using, uh, after you drink alcohol, your judgment is decreased, and I felt like, well, you know what, I'll just use again today with opioids and heroin, and then tomorrow I'll start over, and I had used too much and knotted off and drove under a semi on the interstate. Um, it's all quite vague. My car was most definitely totaled, had to be towed, airbags out, and by the grace of God, I wasn't injured severely, but again, there was the fourth EUI arrest, so I would say that was the point where I felt like it was hopeless because I had already attempted various uh, treatment and recovery centers. But the reality is that they were all great places and I just wasn't in a great place myself to believe that I could in fact get the gift of desperation and the hope of recovery. Uh, so that was the, the December 5th, uh, 2011 was my last drink. I did go to treatment one more time on December 28th, and that's what I consider my recovery date because I haven't touched a mood or mind-altering substance since December 28th, 2011. And it was really from finally listening to all of the set suggestions, realizing I had nothing to lose by trusting people who have been through it before, and that's where the miracle really began for me.
1: We're talking with Melinda White, who... Uh Works in, uh, the recovery world and also as you've been hearing, uh, got to a point where, um, even after a lot of different treatments, um, and we hear this a lot, uh, Melinda, people may be in and out of rehabs for years and, and unfortunately they, um, sometimes family members and other kind of give up on them, but really, it's it just becomes sort of the miracle time when something changes and that happened to you. I mean, it's it's like overwhelming to think of being under a semi on the interstate, uh impaired, and yet it was the uh the impetus for you to to head to Philadelphia to uh um, Teen Challenge, I believe, is is where you were. Um and and how how was that? I mean that was you got into another environment, and it, and it seemed to work.
3: Well, it was actually Teen Challenge I had gone to previous to this last time, and it was out of the various – and that's why I say it's not so much the, the place that you go, but it's the time that you go. The last place I had gone was Maple Leaf, but prior to that, I had completed Teen Challenge, and honestly, out of all the pro- the programs I had gone to, once I was ready to officially put substances down and work a program – Despite the fact that it was Maple Leaf Farm, most of the teaching I got at Teen Challenge is what had, what impacted me, what I finally seemed to understand. Like once you do it, you understand it better than just hearing about it. Um, and then also in my life today, because Teen Challenge was the 13 and a half, pro, 13 and a half month program for me. Um, and I had gone there. I had completed in October of 2010, so it was a little bit over a year prior to uh, relapsing and using again, and the reason that had happened is because I didn't continue to do those things that helped me not use prior to, but the structure, the discipline, and the love at Teen Challenge is ultimately what I, to this day, still hear and practice in my life.
1: And, uh, for listeners, Teen Challenge does operate in Vermont, in, uh, Johnson, and, uh, for men and women, Teen Challenge for teens and adults, uh, and ha- has a very successful program. Coincidentally, uh, Jenna's Promise, which is one of the top, um, recovery centers in Vermont now, um, from a tragedy, uh, Losing a daughter and, and, and turning that into more of a positive, uh, resulted in, um, a town that's really got a lot of recovery going on. And there's some, some other things in that town. You also have a lot of other hats in recovery, Melinda. Uh, a recovery coach. We like to talk a little bit about that. And, uh, also VTAR board. Police Advisory Board. Um, let's start with the recovery coach. That seems to be more of a, a little bit more of a new phenomenon in Vermont, I guess. And uh, how'd that come about?
3: Yeah. So thanks, Brad. Um, recovery coaching for me, honestly, is one of the things I'm most passionate about. Um, in the state of Vermont, we have 12 recovery centers and they're recovery resource centers. And each center employs recovery coaches that can do anything from one-on-one recovery coaching to individuals. Uh, we use a lot of motiv- motivational interviewing and support people in the steps that they're able and willing and interested in doing at that time, truly meeting people where they're at. Uh, my current... Uh, position with the Turning Point of Franklin County is a part-time recovery coach in the emergency department at Northwestern Medical Center. And essentially, when I'm paged to the emergency department because they identify somebody in need of recovery resources, I would get paged and then I have an opportunity to go and meet with those individuals. And then they're contacted for the next 10 days by myself or one of the other coaches to check in, see what they need support with, whether it's getting to residential inpatient, outpatient, Um, And even those wraparound services, you know, we look at the social matrix and some people struggle with, they don't have health insurance or food insecurity or housing. So we connect them with those partners that can support them in those basic needs so they can have more time and energy to focus on their recovery.
1: And part of the success of this, Melinda, is that you're boots on the ground, right? Uh, This is... You've yeah. you've seen it, you've done it, you know it, and it's peer to peer in some cases. Is is that part of the success?
3: I definitely think it is. You know, from my own experience, when I was seeking recovery, I was one of those <laughs> brats that would ask every professional I was faced with, "Have do you have any idea what it's like to be dope sick or arrested or drunk?" You know, I really wanted to talk to somebody who had been there, done that, got the t shirt of course since i've been in recovery i've learned that there's very effective professionals in the field that haven't gone through it themselves but the reality is for many people especially in the beginning stage they want to talk to somebody that they don't have to fear being judged because that person has also gone through some stuff and there's more credibility because that person has actually had to get in recovery themselves and has real life examples from their own in their own life on what really works so the efficacy of peer-to-peer in my opinion, is the most valuable.
1: We're talking with Melinda White, a person in long-term recovery, and she works in the field of treatment. If you want to join our discussion, WDEV 802-244-1777. We welcome your calls. Uh, Melinda, also, you you mentioned the Turning Point Recovery Centers in Vermont. Does that mean that's in every county and can people... If they need help, is that a starter place?
3: That's a fantastic place for people to start because they are truly a recovery resource center. So it's not a place that has any. Sometimes people get confused is it an inpatient? Can you go there to stay? It's not the case. It's a place that people can go for recovery related meetings and groups. And then also, if they are looking for recovery resources or treatment resources, Each center is well connected with their community partners so they can refer individuals who are looking for help to the appropriate places. So, yeah, their recovery centers were up to 12 now when I first started in the field. I believe we only had maybe eight or nine. Um, So it's continued to increase. And they're such valuable um, services. And we've continued to get more support for for those organizations. So those are not to be confused with recovery residences.
1: So I want to return to the topic we, we started a little bit on, and that is people who are drinking, it's become a problem in their life. They're drugging, it's become a problem in their life. And when I say problem, meaning their life—it feels like their life is over. That they're hopeless. Um, they don't, can't see an out, even if they've done some sort of recovery work. They've just hit a point where it just seems desperate and, and uh, not something that they can can get out of. But you have a different story, right? Everybody can, at any juncture, find help and change their life.
3: That's absolutely true, and that's, I think, one of the things I love most. I have a TV show called Recovery Rockstar, and what I love most about that is that by interviewing individuals in recovery, we hear stories of people who are diagnosed with illnesses that there's no hope of recovering from because of what they've done to their bodies in their youth. We've talked to people who were facing significant jail time, people who are struggling with homelessness. I mean, when we look at the components around a person who is struggling and at their you know, defined worst, it's almost hard to believe that they could, in fact, heal, recover, and not only that, but be a productive member of society. And there's data that shows that people who have addiction and are in recovery have the earning potential above average because there's a lot of gifting with those individuals, and the key is channeling it and then also having the support to believe that they can, in fact, recover. Which is why I love telling the stories as much as possible. So, and because I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see stories before I finally went to get help.
1: And what we try to emphasize is separating the person from the addiction. Is that right?
3: That's key. It's important to separate the actions of a person from the person. And this is true in any aspect of life, right, that we don't want to define an individual by one action they've done. If they've done something bad, they're not all bad. If they've done something good, they're not all good. They're fallible humans. So it's really separating the person from the offense and learning that using a strength-based approach and being positive and showing love to people is, is what helps them heal beating them and punishing them and being punitive, that doesn't help people become better people.
1: So if you're a relative of somebody who's struggling, um, there is hope for them. And um, our advice always is, you know, love them until they can love themselves. Uh, So, Melinda, you also, of the many hats, uh, the um, Vitar board, I don't know much about that. Um, Can you help us with that?
3: Definitely. So VTAR, it's VTARR, which is the Vermont Alliance for Recovery Residences. And VTAR is the board that started certi- the organization that certifies the recovery residences in Vermont. And you already listed one of the most amazing ones, which is Jenna's Promise. So, uh, I'm on the board of directors of VTAR and we certify the recovery residences, which are not sober houses. They get confused sometimes, but they're a certified program that have standards that they follow and provide support oftentimes includes peer support and then again referral to to you know community partners it's a great place for people to go after they've completed a residential treatment program because they're in a structured residence that is um, safe supportive substance free and also has some you know, minimal requirements with people do need to either go to counseling, attend 12 step meetings, have recovery coaches, be employed. It helps, it's a good step for people to go from being in an institutional setting like treatment to being able to get back out in the community that have support around making sure they make appointments for their recovery, that they're employed, that they're sometimes getting their license back, getting social security cards. So it's a great program. Um, for people to go to, especially if they need to not go back to the atmosphere that they were living in prior to going to residential treatment.
1: And you mentioned employment a few times there, and it's really critical. And, and we know that both Teen Challenge and Johnson and Jenna's Promise are really big on finding jobs, matching people to jobs, so that they can they can get out into the world, take care of themselves, and and really they get to try some jobs out where the employers are going, oh, my goodness, this is an amazing employee, and uh, it's a win-win.
3: Absolutely. You know, the, that saying that downtime and free time is the devil's playground is so true. And when people are in recovery, it's so important to have purpose, to have something that we're, you know, supposed to be suiting up and showing up for. To do esteemable things, to build back our self esteems. and one of the most esteemable things a person can do is go to work and be the best employee they can be in that day. So employment is a huge piece of what we support individuals with in our community with all the different hats I do in the work, whether it's my, my employment with Howard Center, the Turning Point, or the volunteer work with these various boards. The goal is for people to not just get in recovery and abstain from illicit use that destroys their life, but it's also to give them the tools and support they need to thrive and have great lives.
1: So we've been talking with Melinda White this morning. Melinda, we're running out of time here, but I want to thank you so much for being on the show and hope to have you back soon.
3: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brad.
1: All right. Thank you. Uh, coming up on the second uh, hour is Pat McDonald with Paul Burns of VPIRG. Uh, tomorrow, don't miss uh, the show. Uh, I have... Christine Kennelly coming in, the ghosts of the orphanage, St. Joseph's orphanage abuse in Burlington, Vermont. It's, it's a compelling, shocking, uh, learning story. And, uh, we invite you to, uh, to join into the discussion. Uh, the orphanage operated for over a hundred years in Burlington, Vermont on North Avenue. And, uh, there were a lot of, uh, the story is a mysterious deaths, conspiracy of silence, and a search for justice. And Christine Kennelly will take us on that journey. This is Brad Ferland, WDEV, Vermont Viewpoint.
4: Good morning. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, as uh, Brad Ferlin explained, I'm taking the second half, o- uh, second hour today, and we're going to be doing the same thing tomorrow. Um, so not to confuse everybody, but I have got on the line Paul Burns, who's the executive director of VPIRG, um, and that's the Vermont Public Interest Research Group, and I am thrilled that he is here. And, Paul, thank you for making the switch with me today. I really appreciate it.
5: Well, thanks, Pat. It's a pleasure to be with you.
4: Thank you. Um yeah, we've known each other over the years, haven't we? a um, lot of yeah, years I have. think. Um Quite so a while, it turns <laughs> out. Yeah. Exactly. Don't agree on some things, but but I'm <laughs> we're I asked Paul to come here today because there's a bill in the Senate, I believe, that's um talking about rank choice voting. And to tell you the truth. I don't know. I can't get it in my head. So I am looking at this show. Paul's going to explain it to me. Somebody told me Paul Burns was the best explainer of ranked choice voting. So I called him up. I am here with an open mind, Paul, and I love uh, – I'd like to talk about VPIRG, but we'll do that a little later because I want to just jump right into ranked choice voting. So can you sure. explain what it is?
5: I sure can, and again, thanks for the opportunity no um, to have me on, and for your uh, for your open mind um, on this subject. <laughs> That's uh, fantastic, and, and I really appreciate it. Um, well, I, I should just say by way of brief uh, uh, introduction, Perg is uh, Vermont's largest consumer and environmental advocacy organization. We've been around, we're now in our 51st year, wow. so founded in 1972, and we've got members all across the state, and, and many of your listeners uh, may um, know us as uh, the organization that has folks out in the summer going door to door and talking to them about issues, inviting them to support on a campaign, one issue or another, or join the organization as a member. And so that's, again, one way that people might be familiar with the organization. We do work on a broad range of uh, issues. From consumer protection to healthcare, uh, climate, um, uh, and various environmental issues, and and of course democracy issues, and and this is where ranked choice voting comes in. Um, we believe that our election system works best when everybody, or as close to everybody as possible, participates in that system. We. We try to encourage people to vote regardless of their political persuasion. We just think that's what a healthy democracy is. Removing unnecessary barriers to voting, um, encouraging people to run for office again, regardless of their uh, uh, political views or philosophy. It's just, it's just healthy uh, in a democracy to have more ideas and more participation in that way. Uh, That's our perspective on it. And when it, when you have a robust, uh, system where you may have more than two parties represented in an election. So there, as you know, there are more than just Democrats and Republicans out right. there. As a matter of fact, more, more and more folks, uh, in Vermont and across the country don't feel particularly affiliated with either the Republican or the Democratic parties. They may think of themselves as independents or as conservatives or progressives or, you know, any number of uh, kind of affiliations. But really independent is 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 the way a lot of people think of themselves and in, in trying to choose the best candidate in any particular race. Well, when you have a race with three or more uh, viable candidates, the potential for no one to receive a majority mm-hmm. of the votes cast, that is 50 percent plus one vote to get into that majority line, um, that that um, possibility, you know, grows and is uh, is even likely. And ranked choice voting, the, the theory here is that it's really, it is best, a kind of a fundamental tenet of democracy, that people who are elected can have the support and should have the support of a majority of the people who are participating in that election. And so if you have a three, three-way race, and, and you can think of it now, um, you could think of any candidates, but we sometimes say, well, let's just think of food. You know, you're deciding what you're going to eat on uh, Friday night, and you say, we've got three possibilities. We've got pizza, we've got burgers, and we've <laughs> got liverwurst. Ooh. Well, okay, so liverwurst has its um, supporters, uh, but is is not going to carry the day here. Let's say 15% of the people say liverwurst is what we should do pizza gets forty five percent and a uh, choice of a burger gets forty. So those two are highly competitive, but nobody got fifty percent. Mm. In this example, all those folks who chose liverwurst as their top choice, under a ranked choice voting system, they would have a chance to rank each of those three possible winners as everybody would in the election. and And if the liverwurst supporters, you know they they, they are the last place finisher. So they are eliminated from the contest. And the second choice of those folks who voted for Liverwurst comes into play. And, you know, if 10 percent of those went with pizza and 5 uh, percent went to a burger, then you've got a 55-45 eventual outcome with majority of folks choosing pizza uh, and a burger coming in second. And there uh, you have you give more choices to voters. And and see, it's it's sometimes important to folks in races that they don't end up giving some unintended support to a candidate that they favor the least, that they think would be the worst choice by voting for somebody that they really like. But um but that might split the vote, you know, between two, um uh, two kind of like-minded candidates. And, and that happens not infrequently in elections.
4: So Paul, under this current, we have a caller and I have to switch over to him, uh, her in just a yeah. minute. Um under the current system, we'd have to have a re-election. Is that, if you don't get a clear winner, then we'd it have depends. to go back to the ballots, right?
5: You know, um it depends on the, the, the office involved. So, Ah, uh, for instance, for for governor of the state of Vermont, our constitution is written in a, a my perspective, a little bit peculiar way, which says that if no one gets 50 percent plus one, nobody gets a majority. This is true for lieutenant governor as well. Oh, the uh, then the choice goes right. to the legislature. Hmm. Who gets to choose in a secret ballot um, who the winner is, and I, I think you know that's not the most democratic way of doing
4: it. No, and Some I forgot about heavy. that. So thank you. Shame on yeah. me. That's right. Interesting. Well, well remember, listen, um, right? Yeah, Paul, we've got a caller. Um, is sure. it Joel or Joelle from Colchester?
6: Yeah. No, this is Joel. Oh, jo- oh thank you, D E V Joel here. Uh, <laughs> but I do have a question, two questions, if I may. Sure. Now, let's say you have five viable candidates in the election. Uh, One of them being baloney, but that's something else. Okay, (laughs) five viable candidates. After the first run, do they eliminate just the fifth and take his second-place votes, or do they eliminate the bottom three and take all of their second-place votes?
5: So, Joel, typically what you would do is eliminate the last-place finisher first and you continue that process until one of the candidates rises above 50%. Sometimes eliminating just the last place finisher may not get you there. Maybe that person only received 1% of the vote and that's not enough to bump any of the other leading candidates up above 50% and so you continue that process. But but usually now or in many places um uh, this can be done very rapidly because of the way we vote and the way that the um, ballots can be tabulated. So it can happen you know, pretty quickly in most cases, uh, but that's usually the way you would do it is drop the last place finisher first and continue that process until uh, one person receives a majority.
4: Huh. So, Joel, do you have, a, Joel? you have a second question you said?
6: Yes, yes, I do. And the the second question actually uh, was listening to a candidate speaking somewhere else who asked his potential voters to bullet vote for him. In other words, don't vote for your second, third choice, saying that that would give him a better chance to to win. Uh, I won't mention who, but it was for like a local uh, a a local uh, select board uh, race here in Chittenden county. At any rate, is there any advantage? And maybe I'm using the wrong term. bullet voting. But is there any advantage at all if you have one candidate, don't want anybody else to vote just for that one and ignore all second place votes?
5: That's such a great question. And in fact, the easy answer is there is no advantage to that in a ranked choice voting system. It really frees up voters to vote their, their passion, their heart. Who do you most want? Because you don't have to fear the idea that um, that that may inadvertently help to elect the candidate that you don't like. Because, again, if your candidate, if your first choice can't make it, then your second choice uh, may be considered. And uh, But in a current system, uh, Vermont is a place that has um, multi-winner uh, districts for Senate. For instance, I'm in Washington County. We've got three senators. If you really just want one of them, then you have this kind of uh, calculus, strategic voting, it's sometimes called, or bullet voting, where you say, um, I really like two of those three. I don't care for a, a third or the last thing I want to do is give them support. Um, and so I'm only, I really mostly care about one. Then you might, in that case, just vote one time, even though you've got three votes, huh. three choices for a senator. That that's a kind of strategic voting that takes place under the current system um uh we think yeah and and honestly multi-winner districts are a little bit um of a different animal as well but i think the most fundamental answer to your question is no there's no advantage to bullet voting and i will give one other example of this it's outside of vermont but the state of alaska used ranked choice voting for uh their federal races so for u.s congress and uh, folks may recall Sarah Palin, a uh, former governor of Alaska and former vice presidential candidate, was on the ballot. She urged her supporters to only bullet votes. Um And unfortunately for her, there were essentially three viable candidates for that race. It was a, um, uh, a race where you had two Republicans and one Democrat all running together because of the way Alaska runs their system. And... The republic, the people who voted for her Republican challenger, one of her uh, opponents, um, chose to follow her advice and only bullet vote. And um, whereas she might have gotten their second choice if they had decided to rank all three candidates, she ended up losing to the Democrat. And, and Alaska uh, represented uh, chose a Democrat to uh, represent them for the first time, and I think maybe their history. Um, and uh, so. There is no advantage to bullet voting. You get to vote your heart. You get to vote your, your best choices under a ranked choice voting system. And we think that's one of the great advantages.
4: Interesting. Thank you very much, Joel. I think, Paul, you're going to be kept busy today by our listeners. I have another caller, Diane from Burlington. And, of course, Burlington does have a uh, ranked choice. Go ahead, Diane.
6: Yes, um, we do now. And um, we did when we elected Bob Kissen. And um, the thing I wanted to ask is, do we now have a democracy and no longer have the republic? Because they keep talking about democracy, democracy. And I really thought we had a republic. Is that
4: no longer true? You want to take that, Paul? This
5: is is kind of one of those semantic questions. I think it's a little bit of a dog whistle politics Mm. thing, but... Uh, The United States is a democratic republic, um, often referred to as a democracy. It is a democracy, but not every vote, not every choice that is made um, uh, to determine public policy in the United States or in the state or at the local level is made by a plebiscite, a vote of all of the people. Um, but we do vote. We do have the freedom to vote and choose our elected officials. And they then make their choices as our representatives, typically in the legislature or a city council. So, uh, no, I think the democracy yep. is alive, alive and well, as is our democratic republic.
4: I always refer to the general term with, I'll say, a small D or a small P. Uh, I think I'm hoping that's the democracy we're talking about because we are a republic. That that hasn't changed. Right.
5: It's a it's a democratic republic,
4: right? Okay, little little blend. Well, I don't I haven't seen any choice. I don't know what the the uh, the caller was talking about about rank rank choice voting. Whether that takes away from the republic, but seems to me no,
5: I don't think so. I I, I didn't understand that connection. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I should again just say it's it is so. It is straightforward. The idea, idea again, is if you've got three or more candidates, you simply as a voter are given the opportunity to rank the candidates in order of preference. And that only comes into play if no one gets 50 percent plus one when the initial tallies are counted. And so uh, that's that's what it's all about. Burlington has had it um in place before for right. mayor they now have it in place for city council Ooh. and they used it for uh, citywide for the city council races uh, for the first time earlier this month and we had a chance to ask voters about it we polled some 50 uh, voters there and and found um uh gosh it was more than 85 percent feel of positive about right. it or very positive you know and 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 Essentially, 90% of them thought that it was very easy. That was 77%. Another 12% thought it was somewhat easy, not a single person described it as very difficult. So, again, it's just if you give somebody the chance to say he got three candidates, vote, uh, rank them in order of preference. You don't have to, but you're invited. You're given right. the opportunity to do so. so I think th- people can do that pretty
4: easily. I think that's an important point. If you really don't like, I mean, seriously yeah. don't like somebody, you don't have to include them in this ranking, right?
5: You do not. You uh, do not. And, and essentially what that means is they're your last choice. You know? Right, exactly. It's, it's kind of like ranking them, but you – you need not vote for any more than a single candidate. OK, you know, um, if you or you, you can skip that race entirely, if you know, if you don't as, as, as voters, we understand we always have those options. But this just gives you more options, more choice. And therefore, we think a stronger voice in the process. Now,
4: the bill in the in the legislature, I think it's only talking about the presidential election right now. Is that true?
5: It talks about the presidential election. Uh, this is, would be the presidential primary in right. Vermont in in five years, 2028, oh, yeah. it would take effect. And it would also allow local communities, municipalities, ah. cities and towns to decide for themselves if they want to use this now. Burlington has made that choice, for instance, but it required a vote of the legislature to approve its uh-huh. proposed charter change. Yeah, this right. would empower local communities, whether they decide to do it as a, through a vote of, the, of their people, of the voters there, or as a legislative body, a city council, for instance. Yeah. Um, it would give them that authority to do so, and it would also set up a summer study committee with uh, clerks on the Secretary of State's office and other interested parties to look at whether it would make sense for other offices in Vermont. But primarily, the only one that it would say this is what we're going to use it for as a matter of state policy would be the presidential primary five years out from now.
4: Okay. Well, Paul, we have another caller. I think you're going to win the call-in prize here. Uh, Bill, <laughs> Bill from Burlington, go ahead.
7: Actually, that's going to be Dale.
4: Oh, well, sorry about that. I pre- Sorry, Dale. That's,
7: sorry. That's okay. Um, I'd like to uh, make my comments concerning ranked choice voting, and this goes back to the uh, original election that we had that uh, Mr. Burns spoke about right. with, uh, with uh, Curly Kiss and uh, Hinda Richards.
4: Uh-huh.
7: Uh, Hinda Miller. Excuse
4: Hinda me. Miller, oh, yes, of course, Hinda. Yes,
7: yes. Um, I had three choices in there. And I also had a choice to write in somebody as well on that Mm -hmm. first ballot. Um, So, on the second ballot, I wrote in my same choice that I wrote in on my first ballot. I did not vote for the two people I did not want to vote for, which effectively spoiled my ballot in the second round. Thus, my vote was disqualified improperly in my opinion because that simply helps suppress the vote if i've got three candidates and i only want to vote for one of them i'm going to write in somebody and that's what i did but my ballot was spoiled and i was denied my chance to vote my huh. vote was
4: suppressed can, can i just add before paul uh, answers that um you voted twice uh, so on the two I did, separate ballots, is that what you're saying? I,
7: no, oh. no, no. What I what I did on my first ballot, yeah, I had the opportunity to vote for the three candidates. Yeah, what I did, I voted for the candidate of my choice, and in the other two slots, I voted for a write-in, who just happened to be that candidate that I voted for that was on the ballot. Ah. Uh. And that spoiled my ballot. Oh,
4: I see. But it okay.
7: also suppressed my vote.
4: Uh-huh. I see. Paul, you want to take that one?
5: Yeah, that's it's essentially saying you, there's only one candidate that you support there. And if that candidate is the one that is eliminated because they got so little support, then you either have a choice to vote for someone else or you choose not to, and in which case you, your vote counted. You voted for someone who didn't qualify for uh, consideration in the, in the, uh, later rounds of voting. And so you have chosen not to vote. As we said before, nobody is forced to make a choice, um, uh, to, uh, to vote under ranked choice voting. But what you can't do is support the same candidate as choice. your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, uh, because that, it doesn't make any sense. You know, they, if, if they're eliminated, they're gone. They're no longer in consideration under ranked choice voting. Um, and if they haven't been eliminated, then your vote is still with that candidate. So there's no need to choose them uh, for your second choice or third choice. You see what I mean? So you only get one vote, uh, whether that's under nice. the current system or under ranked choice voting. Um, and you get to decide who that vote goes to. Um, but it. It just doesn't make any sense to vote for the same candidate as your first choice, your second choice and your third choice, because either those choices wouldn't come into play because it's a top vote getter where your, your second choice was never needed to be considered or they were eliminated, in which case. Well, sure. You you chose not to vote for someone else, so that that's the choice of the voter in that
4: huh. case. Interesting. Thanks, Dale. Hope that answered your question. Thanks for calling in, um, Paul. I'm, uh, we were talking now about ballots, and I'm not sure where I got this document. I printed uh, something off, and it was in the papers. I don't know where it came from. It showed examples of a correctly marked ballot, and then two examples of those that are not. I, I'm, I'm trying to picture what that ballot will look like because it's going to be different than what we're all used to. And how do you educate people to use that ballot appropriately?
5: Yeah, I think uh, that may have come. I know the city of Burlington, for instance, produced some examples like that. Oh, and okay. in this case, it might have been showing just what the last caller or similar to what the last caller was describing. Right. They, really, they really like one candidate. <laughs> they want to yeah. vote for them in each in each round. Uh, there's just no need to do that. You vote for them once, and and that vote counts as long as they are a viable candidate in that race. Right. But if if you wanted to show somebody, no, here's here's uh, an example of a ballot that would not count. That would be considered um, a spoiled ballot. Would be if you voted for that same candidate in each of those three rounds or something. So we're saying don't do that. You know, you you just choose in order of preference, as many candidates as you would like who are in that race. Um, Again, uh, what it would list as, you would see each candidate's, let's say, one name under the other, under the other, okay? And then you would have three columns after that. First column for your first choice, second column for your second choice, and third. And you'd have a little uh, oval to fill in under each. And uh, so it's it's pretty straightforward when you see the ballot in front of you there. You say, you know, that's all you need to do is rank them in order of preference. Um, and you, you rank each of those candidates in the order that you most favor them.
4: So um, what kind of – whoops, i got to take a break. Sorry about that, Paul. Uh, This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. I hear the music. We'll be right back with Paul Burns. Um, If you want to call in, it's 244-1777. Be right back.
0: Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, We're more than just radio.
4: Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. I'm back with Paul Burns, who's the executive director of VBERC. Um, so, Paul, um, I'm assuming the education part is going to fall to the Secretary of State's office as this passes, and organizations like yourself. Um, I mean, if it's 2028, I feel more comfortable that there's plenty of time to educate people. I had I read some things that they wanted something um, this year or next, next year at the earliest. I, I just think I, – I understand what you're saying. I just think it's going to be a lot of education. Um, for people well, to understand, and and it's once you hear you're talking about it, it, I get it. It makes sense. But when when you're out in the public and hear ranked choice voting, it's very confusing. Well, if
5: people are not familiar with it and they need to understand the right. basics of what it is, I couldn't agree more. Um, and and that's why we really we wanted to see it passed last year, uh-huh. which would have given us an additional year. Uh, we heard the arguments from clerks and others uh, reasonable um, that uh, they wanted more time to uh, to educate themselves and voters about this. And so um, it's with some disappointment, but we certainly support the legislation that would put it in place for 2028. Let me tell you one other reason why in the presidential primaries this is so important, and that is that we often, at least on one side or the other in presidential primaries, have many candidates. Mm-hmm. And it appears that in the Republican race in 2024, there may be uh, – we, we don't know the full slate yet, but there, but there may be a good number of candidates, six right. or more. And in that case, uh, it is not uncommon for some candidates to drop out of the race before vermont's primary is held in early march Mm -hmm. Um, but but perhaps after and in fact we know that from data it is often after candidates a certain or a certain number of voters have already cast their ballots and if you cast your ballot a little early by you know voting as, as we allow people to do in vermont voting by mail or in person you can do that 30 or more days beforehand uh, a candidate drops out in the interim, then then your vote is kind of wasted under the current system because that candidate is, as by their mm-hmm. own terms, no longer running for mm-hmm. the office. And we have seen this true for both Democrats and Republicans that literally thousands of Vermonters have dutifully cast their ballot for somebody that they really like, only to find that that person is no longer running by the time the primary takes place.
4: Wonderful. And,
5: and we think every vote should count. everybody should have the opportunity and if you had a ranked choice voting system in place and a candidate has dropped out of that race then your second choice could mm-hmm. be considered in that case and and again that's one of the other reasons one that we had not talked about before but that applies really specifically um or uh has even greater resonance, I think, with the presidential primary, because that's when where candidates drop out more so than in right. other typical races that we can think of.
4: But I'm trying, I'm remembering back a couple of years, we had, uh, the Republicans had like 15, I mean, a lot of candidates. Yes. I mean, yes. was it, it was 17, 17 comes to mind? Yeah. I don't know yeah. if I'm right or wrong, but that's a lot of candidates. And within that group, there are probably some that are equal too. and so... Um, they either one could could qualify as president if you're but seventeen's a lot
5: yeah but and then Pat, as you may have seen again, under the current system, um, some candidates fear that by running uh, they may end up allowing a candidate to be elected uh who they they think is not fit for office, mm-hmm. like Larry Hogan. Is the former Republican governor of Maryland a, a, a often considered a, a a democratic state, blue state you right. know, but he was a very, very popular Republican governor there, just left office. He contemplated running for president and said, "I'm not going to do that because I fear that the vote could be split in the primary uh. between uh, candidates more moderate like himself who um, and then allowing a candidate and, and I think I could say just in his case, he's talking about former president trump." Mm-hmm. Who might have somewhere between 20 and 35 percent of the vote, and and if the vote is split among many many candidates, that's enough. Uh, to 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 win you know most of the delegates and that's what Larry Hogan said he feared and uh, therefore decided not to run for president. If you had a ranked choice voting system, that wouldn't be a concern. Um, and so I thought that's one more thing to, to yeah. I think that's a,
4: it That's a good example
5: of this type of system.
4: Yeah. Yep, that's a really uh, uh, that's a good example. When I read the bill, it was the version version 3.1. Um, it's S32. If anybody wants to look it up. And if there's some wording in there I wanted to ask you about. It says mm-hmm. by lot, L O T lot, which means a method determined by the Secretary of State for ran. This is the word I f- focused on for randomly choosing between two or more active candidates. <coughs> Did I read that wrong, or I don't like the word randomly?
5: I I think that is in the case of a tie. If I am um, uh, as I understand that, and that's the way certain races, it's there's no better way right. to rerun the race uh, to figure this out, and it's kind of like flipping a coin. Um, in that case, if huh. it comes out as an absolute tie, that's
4: a heavy uh, so responsibility.
5: Some, some way of saying who wins, right? You know, if you if you come down to a tie, and I believe that's what it's referring to. Okay, it's very rarely though sometimes, and and that happens today. You know, I, I I think I recall at least one house race coming down to a flip of a coin in huh. recent years here in Vermont, but it, it's very rare.
4: That's a Pretty big responsibility for the Secretary oh, of State. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be her at the moment, but um,
5: at, at least then you would be deciding the race itself would be decided. And again, I think that's consistent with way with what happens today. And in, in an absolute tie yep. in any given race, um, you're at least deciding between the two candidates who got you know the, the exact same number of right, votes, and you right. got more than them. And so you're you know it's it's it is I suppose. Uh, close to Democratic in that
4: sense. Right. So that
5: you're not just taking among I all think candidates if, who are running. You're not just going
4: uh, by lot. If I was the Secretary of State, I think I'd like to have a little committee do that with me. That's <laughs> But just a <the> thought. <laughs> yes. Good grief. Big arrow on your head. Hello, it's me. Yeah. I, I picked him or her. Um, now, <laughs> I also read – I have so many questions. i got pages of questions. Um, there's two types of ranked choice voting available, Uh and it's the party's choice – a winner-take-all or a per- on a proportional basis. Could you explain that?
5: Sure. This is actually referring to the presidential primary, and uh-huh. this is where the prior the two parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party right. themselves, get to decide how their candidates are chosen and how uh, delegates are mm. awarded in the individual states, and they they have different methods of doing it um, for the Democrats. For instance, they use, uh, as you say, a so-called proportional uh, way of choosing the delegates. So any candidates who, who runs in the Democratic primary in a given state, who wins at least twenty, or excuse me, at least fifteen percent of the vote, qualifies for delegates. Uh-huh. And and then you decide, well, how many delegates does the state have, and how can we divide those out uh, proportionally among all of the candidates who got at least fifteen percent of the vote? So the theory there is. They want to kind of recognize that various candidates appeal to different types of people and and anybody who meets at least a certain threshold of legitimacy and support in a given state, that is to say the 15 percent, then you should, you should get some representation for that from that state. That's the way the Democrats think of it. The Republicans have a system which is a little bit different and I, I think may also vary by state, but at least in Vermont it says – if any Republican candidate running for president receives at least fifty percent of the mm-hmm. vote, is you know gets a majority, then they get all of the delegates from that state, no matter how the other you know maybe fifty percent or forty nine percent maybe divvied among various other candidates, um, and so that's a majority winner take all system. If nobody gets fifty percent, then everybody who gets at least twenty percent in the Republican Party. So they also use kind of a. Both proportional, if, if nobody Mm -hmm. gets a majority, or somebody gets a majority, it's a winner take all. Hmm. I know that may sound a little bit confusing, but that's really just up to the parties to decide how they are going to pick their presidential nominees.
4: Interesting. I didn't even know that. So, um, I'm looking at my notes. The governor last year did not support this, the bill at all. Um, and I think he's also made a comment this year. He's not a fan. Um, so if he doesn't – if he vetoes the bill, it will go back to the legislature. And, and I'm sure there's – I mean, there's so many new legislators out there. What's your sense of uh, their support of this bill?
5: Um, it's it's really beginning its path um in the Senate, uh, as you mentioned right. earlier. It, it But it did receive six votes in the Senate Government Operations mm-hmm. Committee. That is support from all six members. That was oh, unanimous perfect. support. Okay. It, it had – support for, from Democrats, from a, a, a Democrat uh, slash progressive member and a Republican member of that committee. So across the, the you know, small political spectrum of that committee, it yep. did have re, uh, received support. And I think what's important is that the governor uh, and I respect his, his position and, and he may decide he doesn't like this yet, but he was he his earlier comments, at least, were referring to races where you are electing one person in a winner-take-all system.
3: Mm-hmm. So
5: for instance, that might be governor or, or member of Congress or something. But in a presidential race, um, you have this opportunity for proportional representation. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, where he says, hey, in my mind, the person with the most votes should win. That's just not the way uh, the primaries are run. You know, uh, again, if the Republicans, if you get to 20 percent, if no, you know, then you can get some delegates in, in the Democrats, everybody who gets to 15 percent. And so I think. Because the system is run differently in the presidential primary, and that's the only uh, race that this bill would would say, you know, this is the way we're going to do things in the future. I hope that we might have a chance for the governor to think again about this again, particularly perhaps given the Larry Hogan example in in the Republican presidential primary, too, and the fact that thousands of Vermonters tend to be disenfranchised because they vote early in presidential primaries. I think all of those arguments, I hope might convince the governor that this is one uh, worthy of his support. And it also just allows local communities to decide for themselves if they want to do that. And again, Burlington has done it and Um, Nearly 90 percent of people in Burlington that used it in this last go around said they would also like to see it expanded to other statewide uses like the presidential primary. So you're seeing there people using it, many of them for the very first time, found it easy and said, yeah, I'd like to use this in other races as well.
4: Interesting. So I I read where you, um, VPIRG, did a mock rank choice voting um uh in a, you did a, a mock trial how did that work it was was it uh, well well received and did it work as you're saying
5: yes uh well we did that um actually in the um uh last year in the primary season uh as you had a, a number of races mm-hmm. so you had uh, we're looking at the federal races in particular there for U.S. House and U.S. Senate. And we looked at the Democratic and Republican primaries. <clears throat> excuse me. And we had um, a, a number of people. We just put it out to folks, say, hey, if you want to try it, here's what a ballot would look like. Nearly 1,300 Vermonters cast ballots under that system. Um, in three of the four primary races covered, uh, a majority winner emerged in the very first tally of votes. So that was, uh, true of the two Democratic primaries for House and Senate, um, and also, um, in the U.S. Senate race, uh, on the Republican side. But in the U.S. House race on the Republican side, where you had three candidates who were quite close together, um, including, uh, Erica Bundy-Reddick at 39%, mm-hmm. Anya uh, Tino had 32, and Liam Madden had 29% in our, you know, mock poll. Right. As you know, in the end, in the, in the real uh, primary, Liam Madden ended up carrying that. But this is one of those cases where you might find a number of Republicans who say, hey, maybe we should have used ranked choice voting because huh. at least under our system, uh, Liam Madden coming in third, a close third at 29%, but he would have been dropped out and his supporters would have had the opportunity to then choose between the other two candidates. Right. Some might argue this was a case where, uh, you know, a, a certain vote was split among two more like-minded candidates and um, and a third was able to uh, to carry it. But, Interesting. you know, there could be all sorts of examples. And I guess I would just say this doesn't it's not intended and does not in practice support any one party over another. It's just allowing voters to have that choice and ensuring that we ultimately have you know, more representative winners in the end.
4: That's great. Um, Paul, is there anything else that we should talk about? Before I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the other things Vberg is watching in the legislature this year.
5: Well, just with respect to rank choice, I think, again, uh, people seem to like it because it gives them more choices as voters. Um, it it ends up having elections that are a little less toxic because candidates are vying to be your second choice if not your first and so they're a little less likely to attack Mm. uh, their opponents or challengers in the race with with uh, vitriol and and negative advertising and so people like it because campaigns are a little less toxic and it and it produces uh majority winners in in winner take all races and, and more representative elections and again in the presidential primaries fewer voters have their votes wasted on candidates who drop out of the race. So those are just some of the key reasons why we think it's a great reform and why we hope it continues to have a lot of support moving through the legislature.
4: Well, I certainly appreciate the comment about toxic. Um, and if, <laughs> no, seriously, uh, we never – I don't ever remember. It's just getting worse every year, yeah. and um, I don't like to see that because I remember when I first came here a whole bunch of – 26 years ago, it, it wasn't quite the same. So, um, maybe that's something I think that a lot of search- people feel that, yeah,
5: I think a lot of people feel that way Pat no. and, and and this isn't I'm not saying it's a cure all for that, but it does make yeah. sense that you're that you're trying to say uh as a candidate, you are." You hope to receive their first choice, but you are worthy of their second choice too, and right. so you're you're less likely to get that by attacking, you know, their first choice as a terrible person and all the rest. Exactly. So, well, again, it's one of those other additional benefits of the of that system.
4: I agree with you. Um, I really it just upsets me. Everybody's so angry, and I'm like, really, people, stop. You look around uh, every so often. I just say to my husband, we are just so lucky. Um, when you stop and think about all the good things in your life, um we try not to be angry, but people are are a little angry these days, so maybe they should yeah. take a look at this so let 's talk about v a little bit. I know that um i don't know which things you're involved in, but the right to repair yeah. legislation is something i I read that you were um pretty active in i don't maybe you could talk a little bit about that yeah. uh for our folks.
5: Yeah, sure. This is one of those basic kind of consumer protection issues that we are involved in. There aren't a lot of groups who are doing this now, but we we believe it's fundamental to, <clears throat> excuse me, what we're trying to, um, to to represent for our members and for Vermonters generally. So, our repair system is kind of broken in, in this state and in this country. From computers to cell phones to farm equipment, medical devices, consumers and repair shop owners are at a severe disadvantage uh, when it comes to Trying to get those things uh, repaired. And they, and it is because the manufacturers of those items have decided not to make repair possible for their items unless you go back mm. to them. So fair repair is a sensible solution. <clears throat> Excuse me. It has dual issues of reducing waste and costly repair and addressing the costly repair monop- non- monopolies. It huh. encourages, um, uh, the manufacturers requires the manufacturers to make information and parts available to folks so that the products that they own, after all, could be repaired by themselves or by somebody else that they may hire to do that. Um, you think that you buy a John Deere tractor, for instance, now you own it, you should be able to repair it. But a lot of times, in the in the fine print, after you buy a a piece of farm equipment like that, or even a cell phone, is that if you open it up, you try to repair it for yourself, then all other warranties are voided, um, and you're you're kind of on your own for that. And by the way, we're not going to make the materials and, and information necessary to allow you to effectively repair that. As it turns out, manufacturers are sometimes, as uh, kind of their business model now, making more money from repairing their products than they are in creating it and selling it to begin with, because they've kind of locked you in as a consumer. And that kind of goes against the grain, I think, for many in Vermont who believe, I bought it, I own it, I should be able to repair it and have it and own it and use it as long as possible. We are turning into more and more of a throwaway society, which is a challenge as well. There are environmental uh, and, and public health uh, yeah. concerns with that, um, but we just can't keep creating things that have a useful life of eighteen months, throw it away, and get a new computer or a new <laughs> camera or a new phone. <laughs> that's the truth, um, and that's the way it's kind of designed
4: now. Yep. I know. I, I went and got my computer. And he said, oh, you have it, had it for two years, like it was old, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. I only had it for two years. Why is it failing? Yeah, you're right. So and there, there it looks like the there's Senate. three bills out there, one in the Senate and two yeah. in the House, ha- no, no, two in the Senate and one in the House on electronic devices and agriculture equipment. Now, uh, is it, are they moving along? Do people get it?
5: We, they did not meet the uh, so-called crossover deadline right. that you're familiar with, but We do uh, believe, and particularly the farm equipment is a little more narrowly focused and and is such an important item for so many Vermonters, not all Vermonters, but, you know, really important issue here. Um, I know there was some progress made last week uh, in an effort to try to hit that crossover deadline. I don't think it made it, but that doesn't mean that legislators aren't serious about these issues in both the House and the Senate. And I hope this biennium, this this two-year legislative term, that we will see some action here. But it's it's tough. Um, New York has state has passed something. Uh, Massachusetts has passed something dealing with cars, but not other items. And Vermont would really be one of the leading states to do this. But I think what perfect what more perfect state than Vermont, where, you know, it's a kind of a Yankee frugality, but just mm-hmm. kind of, and, and being against unnecessary waste. Um, and uh, all sorts of reasons why I think this has a lot of resonance with Vermonters. Yeah. Again, across the board, without it doesn't matter what your politics are. I think people believe that they should have a right to repair their own items.
4: It makes sense when you're talking about it, doesn't it? Um, well, there's always <laughs> that so. famous word, notwithstanding. I tell people that's the most <laughs> powerful word in in the legislature. <laughs> notwithstanding, we didn't make Passover. Here's a bill, uh, Passover, Passover. Yeah. Uh, crossover um anyway uh it just makes a lot of sense the other bill i know somebody in your firm has been following it the yeah. affordable he- uh heat act which uh, has gotten yeah. a lot of attention from everybody yeah. this year uh what what is VPERC's position on that not i know you can't get into details but
5: sure sure and i know our time is is short but yeah The Affordable Heat Act is basically this idea that companies that import fossil fuels into Vermont for heating have to do more to help Vermonters move to cleaner and more affordable heating options for their homes and businesses. And this would require uh, those uh, businesses to actually do more to help Vermonters uh, move away from fossil fuels. To more sustainable heating options and it also has um, uh, provisions that guarantee more investments to reduce heating costs for low and moderate income vermonters that's a change this year that i think is, is broadly yep. uh, popular among legislators and and it's really important as we move to electrification and weatherization services Moving away from uh, some of those fossil fuels. Um, and if we, if we want to effectively deal with, with climate, uh, the, the climate change that we are experiencing now, um, this is one of the big areas to look at is heating. Of course, transportation is another one. There are other things happening there. Right. Um, and, and with electricity too, we want to generate as much clean electricity as possible in state from solar and other sources. Because if you're shifting to electricity to provide heat in a home or business, you got to make sure that that's coming from a clean source, too. And so they're all related, but it's a very, very important priority for us.
4: Paul, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Thank you for your explanation of ranked choice voting and uh, all the work that you um, all do for Vermont over these uh, many years. Um, I really appreciate it. Even though On occasion, we've not been on the same side, but it's good <laughs> to bring fair. all the that's ideas fair. to the table.
5: Thanks, Pat. I really appreciate the opportunity.
4: Yeah, thank you very much. We'll have you back again. Paul Burns, Executive Director for VPIRG. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'll be back tomorrow, Um, and so will Brad, just to confuse everybody. See ya. Bye.